Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships. You will receive a SurveyMonkey evaluation link after today's activity. And if you're viewing online, you will um, find the evaluation link in the chat section or in the description section of the video. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Christopher Chu, who is a third year internal medicine resident. He attended medical school at the American University of the Caribbean in St. Martin. He originally from Connecticut. He fell in love with the South after doing the majority of his medical school rotations in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. At the beginning of residency, he fell in love with the critical care. Under the guidance of the critical care faculty, he was able to produce many publications, including being published in The Lancet and starting an IRB approved clinical trial. Under the tutelage of our hospital faculty, he was able to best prepare for the fellowship application process this past year and will be starting his critical care fellowship at LSU Shreveport in July. In his free time, he likes to go scuba diving, traveling, going to the gym, hiking, and experiencing new restaurants and breweries. Join me in welcoming Dr. Chu. Is this working? All right. All right. So I'm Dr. Chu, one of the third year internal medicine residents. Uh, I'm gonna talk about delirium uh, from the perspective of an ICU standpoint and how things have kind of changed from centuries ago to now and where we're kind of headed towards in the future. So I do actually have to disclose a financial disclosure. Um, this IRB clinical trial was initially partnered um, with a corporation whose products are gonna be featured in today's presentation. Um, they provide the laptop and virtual reality headset through Hewlett Packard. So today's learning objectives, you're gonna identify what delirium is, um, distinguish between the different types of delirium, identify the current practice of delirium, discuss current management of delirium and its limitations, summarize the new PAIS guidelines and debate strategies for delirium management of the future. So what is delirium? Through DSM-5, delirium is a disturbance in someone's mentation through an underlying cause and their awareness will be unclear of where they are. So it's pretty vague of what delirium is, but all of us in the hospital have seen what delirium is and how it becomes a complication through these patients who are staying in the hospital. So in short, delirium is an acute cognitive change and often a change in consciousness due to underlying medical condition. Most commonly, you're gonna see these folks in the intensive care unit, people who've been in the hospital a long time and people who underwent surgeries. Um, so various scoring systems are used. The most common one that we'll see in our practice is the CAM ICU because ICU is the most common place you'll see it. And it's easiest for the nurses to score it. So CAM ICU and its basics. You have four different areas you want to score from. To start it off with, you know, are they alert and conscious enough to tell you what they're doing? That's your RAS score. Then you're gonna have, are they able to cognitively answer questions appropriately? Are they able to um, answer questions appropriately? Are they know where they are? Stuff like that. That's your CAM scoring. Anything more than two, you're already positive. RAS scoring, if they aren't alert enough to answer their questions, they're already CAM positive. So it's pretty easy to get a CAM positive score. So type of delirium. Everyone knows the most common is hypoactive. This is your old grandma sitting in the bed, doesn't know who, where she is. She might not know who she is. These are the changes from the baseline, but they're not crazy throwing chairs, throwing stuff at you. They're not trying to hit you. These are the ones that people want because they're not 
trying to hit you, but they're easier to treat and easier to manage. They're not preventing you from discharging. Now you have your hyperactive delirium. These are the ones that people think of when they think of delirium. These are the ones who are they're trying to hit you. They're screaming at you. They're agitated. You're trying to drug them. You're sedating. You're restraining them. These are the ones that really complicate hospital stays. So why is delirium important? From a financial standpoint, it's miserable for hospital systems. It extends your hospital length of stay on average by more than a week to 10 days. Increases your morbidity and mortality, not just in the hospital, but even after you leave the hospital. So these are folks, you know, you're at risk for increased agitation infection because you're trying to sedate them, you're trying to drug them, you're trying to restrain them. So you get injuries from that standpoint. When they go home, they're not all there mentally. So it's issues from that standpoint. Um, the cost of the healthcare system alone, because they're staying in the hospital longer, you're trying to drug them and everything else, you're increasing your, hospital, your overall healthcare costs in the country over $150 billion a year. That alone is a big issue for the hospitals and the healthcare industry. So delirium management of the past, do quick basics of kind of where it started, where initial thoughts came is back in ancient Greece, you know, described as a change of mentation due to fever, head trauma. That's the simplest form of delirium. You know, these are people you think will be sick because they're sick, they're getting an altered mentation. Now, really nothing would change until the 1500s and it was used incurable. And as further clinicians through the centuries noted, you know, prognostication didn't happen until the 1600s. Um, now you're getting closer to what we're seeing now in the 1800s. They characterize delirium tremens. In delirium tremens, we see the alcoholism, shaking, confusion, all that. That was characterized in the 1800s. Um, EEG first used in 1959, no delirium was decreased brain metabolism. Um, really didn't get a big breakthrough in delirium until the 1980s when you start finally characterizing what delirium is and how to manage it. Um, in the past, before now, it was treated in the sanosomes. You ship that patient to the sanosome and you do their crazy experiments on them because we don't know what we're dealing with back then. So that's your lobotomies and everything else like that. So delirium management of the present, what do we do? You're trying to reorient these folks. That's your hypolactic delirium. You try to reorient them. You're trying to ask some questions, keep their mentation sound. You're trying to use families as, okay, this is your family member. This is your dad, your sister, your brother, your wife, your husband, and say, do you know who I am? Do you know where you are? Do you know stuff like that? But that's not always great because these folks need to be focused on you and answer these questions appropriately. That's the best we got for hypoactive delirium. Hyperactive delirium, you're trying to reorient them, but they're too combative, they're too agitated, they're too up and out of the bed, they're not gonna listen to you. So what are we doing? We're restraining them and we're sedating them and we're drugging them. All those things that we're giving them can only make delirium worse, unfortunately. You know, we have a huge thing in the hospital, we wanna give people benzos. Benzos make your delirium worse because you're drugging them, you're sitting, you're making their mentation worse. So what we're doing, we're making their delirium even worse. So really we don't have a perfect answer other than trying to keep people calm because what we do when people are calm, we make the nurses happy as well because nobody wants a crazy patient and it's difficult for everyone to manage. So why is this relevant? COVID-19 happened in 2020. What happened then, families were not allowed in the hospital. So now you lose a huge chunk of your ability to manage delirium. So you're shut down your visitors. Now you're relying on your nursing staff, your assistants, your techs to help manage these patients. Most of these patients are on high flow oxygen, they're on bypass, they're intubated, stuff like that. And that makes it even harder. COVID, you don't want people going in and out of the rooms as much. That makes it even harder. So now you have a ton of delirious patients just sitting in the hospital where they can't move because they're confused, they're altered, they're agitated. And now your management becomes that much harder. So what did the pandemic teach us? What we're doing is not working. 
that stuff we need to do needs to change. Stuff that needs to manage better in the hospital, manage these delirious patients to move patients out of the hospital faster in case there is another pandemic, in case the hospital surges happen again for whatever reason, um, because the length of hospital stay lengthens with delirium. So 2018, Patty's guidelines were updated how to manage delirium. And this is posted all across the Society of Critical Care Medicine page through various hospitals have kind of gotten organized together to kind of advice how to help manage delirium, as well as the NIDIS organization through Vanderbilt kind of assisting with how to manage delirium. So these guidelines updated from 2013, long time between updation, and we're probably due for an update soon. Two strong recommendations, 35 conditional recommendations, two good practice statements, and 32 ungraded non-actionable statements. Basically, what's that saying? Really not much has changed. Here are some suggestions, but we don't know if they work. So new emphasis is rehab, mobilization, and maintaining sleep. That's pretty hard in the hospital because what the nurses want to do and techs want to do, check your blood pressure at two in the morning. You're waking that patient up. You're annoyed. You're, you're, now you're not getting good sleep. I don't know about y'all, but I'd be pretty annoyed at 2 a.m. if someone's waking me up in the middle of my sleep. So that makes people more agitated. That makes people more confused. And get people out of the bed and moving. That was a big emphasis because you're sitting in the bed a long time. Your muscles degrade. Your muscles weaken. So the first step, analgesia. How easy is it for everyone to give someone morphine and keep them quiet? Keeps the patient quiet, keeps the nurse quiet. It's easy enough for everyone. But that's not the right thing because what does analgesia do? You're also gonna make them sedated because pain meds are sedating. So the biggest thing they want is, you know, treat the pain before sedating. Treat the pain appropriately. Don't go just rushing for Dilaudid morphine. Treat the pain to where it controls the pain but not makes them agitated and uncomfortable. Use Tylenol in adjunction to an opioid. Low-dose ketamine for surgical procedures to re reduce opioid use. And new one is music therapy. You'll see that you know, we do have music therapy going up and down the halls these days. We have it in the ICU. It's shown to help. Agitation and sedation. New guidelines kind of suggest, you know, don't overstate folks because it's harder for them to either come off the ventilator or their mentation may length and how confused they are because you're over-sedating. So goals is light sedation, extubate quicker. Don't want to put someone on Versed for a long time because Versed is hard to get off. So they're recommending using Presidex or other sedative medications that are easy to turn off quickly. They're shown to have uh, less likely to have tracheostomy and less intubation times. Um, daily spontaneous waking trials. Can you wake them up? Can you safely spontaneous um, exudate these folks. Rehab mobility. This was the biggest thing that they emphasized in the PAIS guidelines, getting these people out of bed. You might think it's, you know, people who are intubated, people who are on BiPAP can't be rehab, can't be moved. Emory has their ECMO patients who are walking. The goal is to get these people moving, whether even if it's up in the bed, moving their arms, moving their legs, getting their muscles moving. Um, that was the biggest thing that the PAIS guidelines pushed. Now delirium. These are two things that they've kind of talked about in the updated guidelines. Pharmacological management, there has been nothing shown to help delirium in terms of pharmacological agents. No Seroquel, no Zyprexa, no Geodon, no Haldol, none of that works. All you're doing is keeping that patient calm. So there is no recommendation in the guidelines to give medications to sedate folks or to make them less calm or thinking it's going to reorient them. The other one is recommending Presidex instead of Versed or the other, other drips that we may use in ICU because Presidex is easier off and it doesn't sit in your neurological system as long. 
sleep. That's another big one. Like I mentioned, no one's happy at two in the morning when they get woken up. So what the biggest thing is uh, you'll see now there's a big push, even in our own hospital system, you activate that delirium order for the nurses. No one's taking blood pressures at two in the morning. No one's doing finger sticks at two in the morning. No one's waking these patients up, let them sleep. Keep their day night cycle perfect. You know, keep, open those blinds at eight in the morning. Make them aware that this is now it's daytime. This is when you're awake. This is nighttime. This is when you're sleeping. So these are the ABCDEFs of the two PADES guidelines. Management pain optimally, early SBTs, SAT trials, spontaneous breathing, awakening trials, manage your delirium appropriately, early mobility, and the last one is family engagement. That I was already kind of leading to with family engagement of when COVID wasn't, before COVID, families in there helping manage these patients by talking to them. As we all see now that families are back, they are more engaged with these patients. How you doing, dad? How you doing, honey? All that stuff. So that's the biggest thing as well, is kind of getting these families engaged, being families being there. Neuro, the strong recommendations. Neuropathic pain, using your neuropathic modulators, not using Dilaudid, morphine, fentanyl. Use your gabapentin, your Lyricas. Um, and not using inhaled aesthetics for procedure pain management. Um, that's your health and several flame. So delirium management of the future. What have we kind of seen in the last 10 years? What we're doing isn't working. What we're doing is very limited when we have pandemics that shut down the hospital to the outsiders. All this kind of tailing up saying that what we're doing isn't working and we need to do something different. So now there's a kind of a new idea that's kind of been floating around um, is a G through I bundle. And it's kind of more focused towards the ICU design. The reality is they want a five-star hotel feel. We want a waiting room. We want an area for the family to sit separate from the patient. We want the patients to have these massive rooms from the walk around in. Uh, that's like walking into the Senesa. That's not realistic unless you completely redesign every hospital's IC, which will cost millions. So that idea is not going to happen just because it's not possible. So that's tailoring your home environment, like I said. Um, redesign a whole ICU, giving them an outside feel on the inside. Some hospitals already bring their patients outside if they're stable enough to see the environment, see the plants, smell outside. That's not always possible to everyone because they're too sick. So what do I have here? I have here as a virtual reality headset, an idea I came up with last summer in the middle of our pandemic. And the idea was to bring these patients back home. With virtual reality, if anyone's ever seen Cribs, back in the early 2000s MTV, you walk through the celebrities' houses. That's the same idea I kind of created here. Um, basically allowing these families, if we can get the opportunity to with the consent of the families is going to the patient's houses, taking a video through, walking through their house, you know, taking with all family members, pets, their bedrooms, making it look like they're back home. Now this idea came through what some uh, specialties are already doing. Burn surgeries are already using virtual reality for the last decade because they've shown that using virtual reality for pain management is actually lessened the amount of use of opioids for these patients. Some of these early teenagers, early 20s, 30s, who are, you know, are using gaming consoles and stuff like that, it's easier for them to like just watch a video and they're actually distracted. They're not actually able to get through burn dressings without needing a ton of fentanyl. They might be able to get away with just some tortol cream. Um, so that's where it's already being used for burn surgery. The other one is, de is dementia. 
neuropsychologists, neuropsychiatrists are using virtual reality to help cognitive behavior in people with mild and moderate dementia. They're showing that their cognition is preventing the progression to severe dementia by using virtual reality, keeping their mind stimulated, keeping their mind thinking, making them do puzzles through virtual, making them look around, making them keep their brain active is preventing, preventing the active progression of dementia or slowing that prevention or progression. So this is where it kind of comes, stimulating your mind and put the patient back at home. That's the whole idea I have here. You know, this headset can track your eye movements, track your pupils, track your heart rate, facial expressions, all that stuff to see, are they having a positive response to what they're looking at? Are they looking at oh, their husband or their wife in the video? Do they smile? Does their heart rate go up? Do they get that positive response that you hope to get? And are they happy to see what they're seeing? Hopefully they don't think badly because then that's a whole nother issue, but um, we put them back at home. Are we reorienting these folks to think that, hey, no, I'm not in the hospital saying, I'm not hearing all these beeping alarms. My mind is thinking I'm back at home. So this trial, IRB approved clinical trial um, that we started this winter. Um, right now we aren't using videos at home. We're kind of just using stimulating videos. I'll show one here um, to see what we're kind of what kind of response the patients are having. Uh, so right now we did try two patients. One patient unfortunately became more septic and could no longer tolerate it um, because he needed more aggressive medical management. Another person who sat on BiPAP was begging the nurses for more. He was, and per the sun, never appeared confused at any single point during his ICU stay. He just kept asking the nurses, can I wear it more? Can I wear it more? Can I wear it more? So at least in the earliest anecdotal evidence is that this is working because it's keeping the patient's mind active. And you know, will this be the potential future management of delirium? Because this has never been done before. So we have something here that potentially work, great. Uh, this will save the hospital billions of dollars across the United States, across the world. You know, is this going to decrease hospital length of stays because we're already strapped for beds as it is? And that's the goal. So in conclusion, delirium is an issue that plays healthcare systems worldwide. It's not just here. It's not just in the state of Georgia. It's everywhere. It's an acute change of mentation due to the underlying acute illness. There's real no clear treatment that we have that can instantly fix delirium. Management is currently limited to what we have, and there is potential possibilities to exist in the future, but we're still kind of developing what is possible. My references, and I have to give a thank, special thanks to Dr. Deval Patel, who cannot be here in person today, but he's basically been my mentor since day one of residency, kind of guiding me along this pathway to critical care. Um, so I have to give him a special thanks for all this. Now, mentorship he's done along this way for me. Questions? What do you mean? So luckily the patient we had wasn't already. I was wondering if there was any kind of, um, like what, how were the patients removed from the virtual headset? Um, and just if you notice anything during so the time. Currently, the nursing staff didn't mention anything to me because I haven't been all at bedside for all of it, but they said uh, they would take it off after about, th the one patient was a tracheostomy patient. Nurses would take it off about 30 minutes, 45 minutes, despite the patient asking for more, even though he's trached. 
Um, and the patient who was on BiPAP, patient just took it off on his own when he was hungry, when he wanted to drink water. But the nurses basically let them wear and just kind of take it off when they kind of asked for it to be taken off. Um, so. That was a great talk, thank you. Uh, I have a question. So how is your study designed? Uh, what are like the inclusion exclusion criteria? You know, if you could just give us a brief in how many patients would you? you what was the last part, sorry? How is your study designed? Okay. Um, what are like the inclusion exclusion criteria? So how, how are you planning to select your patients or okay. do you have like a control population? And like primary outcomes and stuff like that. So if you can just give us an idea of how you're going to do this with all the briefings. So currently the exclusion criteria is anyone who's already hyperactive or intubated. Now intubated is different from tracheostomy. Um, so if they're intubated, that means they're already on probably sedating medications or analgesic medications through IV, that's gonna alter their mentation. So right now it's anyone who goes to the ICU who isn't either they're either going to be hypoactive or they're going to be not delirious at all. So that's step one. Anyone above the age of 18 is step two. Um, exclusions. So basically everyone is able to wear it as long as they meet that inclusion. Exclusions, no one who's demented because um, that's going to make it a little bit difficult early on. Um, anyone who's intubated, anyone who's on sedating medications, that's a goal to exclude those first. Now, as the study progresses and we show that it works in the hypoactive and the normal patients who aren't intubated, then the idea is to go to the intubated patients. Are we gonna put this on? When are we gonna put this on? Maybe when they start awakening trials. And then we'll worry about the hyperactive layer because the concern is how do we keep that on them without them throwing it? How are you assessing the outcomes? What outcomes are you looking at? And how are you assessing it? how many patients you're looking to enroll? So ideally we're trying to get about 200 patients in the initial part before we move to the next part of the study, um, looking at the intubated patients and the hyperactive to see are we having a positive outlook. But we're gonna look at our, what's their CAM ICU score? Are we, are we preventing them from becoming delirious is number one. Number two is are we potentially treating delirium? Are we getting them out of the scoring where they're positive? So we're look, those are the big, two biggest things Preventing delirium, and are we treating delirium? We the KMIC scoring. The other data points we'll connect, collect is we're able to kind of see in the video, are we look, are they looking at anybody in particular? Their company we're working with can see at what point are were they looking at in the video? Are they looking at their husband or are they looking at the wall? When they look at their husband or their wife, are they getting an increased heart? Are they getting a sympathetic response? Are they having increased heart rate? Are they, are they smiling? Are they are their pupils dilating? All that stuff that can be tracked to the headset, are we getting that response? That's what we're trying to get at. So the easy answer is we're looking at KMIC, the little details we're trying to see, are they having a sympathetic response to where they're looking? There's one in the back corner.
I had two questions. Um, so how long are the patients on the device for? And the second question is, I know you said it's geared towards delirium, but patients who are also on sedating agents as well, does that not affect like your trial if you're already having them on antipsychotics and things like that? So how would you say the device is actually working if they're already on antipsychotics, for instance? So are they on antipsychotics because they're on it normally for like schizophrenia or are they get it to us in the hospital because they're agitated? Because they're agitated? <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. Um, so the first part is initially the plan is for 30 minutes after each meal. Um, that's just kind of a baseline number. If the patients want to wear it longer, that's ideal. Right now, there isn't a lot of patients that are eligible. So letting them wear it longer um, this is how it's happening. So maybe an hour right now, but as we get more patients, as we get more headsets, it's going to be a little bit easier than just 30 minutes because we only have one headset right now. Um, the other part is we're trying to prevent the use of the, those antipsychotics and sedating agents. So if we're using it, the goal is to not use those agents. If we have to use the agents, okay, yes, you may alter it, but we're still going back to the CAM-ICU scoring. Are they being CAM positive or are they not? Because your RAS can still be negative with an antipsychotic. Great presentation, very interesting concept. Um, how do you, um, what are your controls? Like, how do you plan to kind of, um, you know, control for the, Delirium PR set. So we have a whole Brazilty campus I see that is going to be the control unit. Um, we're not using the headset down there. So anything that happens down there, obviously we're still using Seroquel, Zyprexa, Haldol down there is what they're doing different or any difference in terms of management. Are they seeing worsening delirium outcomes versus what we're going to be seeing in Gainesville? But it's, it seems like, uh, like the nurses who are calculating the COM ICU score can see that the patient is wearing a headset and maybe that can bias um, their calculation. But then I mean, you're falsifying medical records. What's that? Then you would be falsifying your documentation. Well, so that's a whole, that's why I mean, CAM is, a, is very objective. I'm not saying that they're like lying or anything. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes it may be like implicit bias or something. Anyway, it's just something to think about, but yeah, thank you for answering. Hey, great talk. Question for you. So obviously you talked about all the benefits associated with the device. Whenever we tell, you know, patients or families that we're offering this, we need to talk about risks and benefits. What are the risks associated with it? So the biggest risk, if anyone were a virtual reality headset, is nausea um, and Virgo-like symptoms. Me, myself, am terrible to virtual reality headsets. This is why I chose this product after trying two or three different headsets that at least give us what we would want. This one minimizes all nausea. It was actually developed with the military in mind for PTSD. So the device itself is already minimizing the whole nausea, motion sickness to it. Um, giving Zofran will not alter the study at all. Um, but if people who have significant vertigo, seizures, stuff like that, uh, then that's also kept in mind. So people who have a history of seizures probably would not want to wear it to begin with because they probably have had bad experiences. Um, but control, symptomatic control for nausea and motion sickness with our anti-emetics. 
Are seizures part of the exclusion criteria then? They are. That's one I forgot to mention is seizures. That's part of the exclusion criteria. Hey, great presentation, man. <clears throat> um, quick question. So I don't know if I missed this or not, but what are the patients actually seeing in virtual reality? We're about to try this once the question. Oh, we're done. seeing it. Okay. And are you going to research more into like different kinds of virtual reality, how they affect the patient more? In like, is that something? What? I'm sorry. In terms of what do you mean? Specific? Like in different settings of virtual reality, like different scenes or anything they're exposed to are you going to try that out in the future like what works best for so the perfect world is we're going to put them back home okay that's a perfect world we're going to take a video of them basically walk in their house with a 360 camera walk around the house that's the ideal scenario people whose families don't consent to that we're going to use relaxing scenes you know walking through the plains fields you know maybe walk through rome stuff like that Any other questions? I apologize. This is kind of a more general question and I'm a med student. So I don't know if this is already in practice, but um, do they have like data around just using like headphones or noise canceling? Like you said, with music therapy, um, is there data just cutting out all the craziness around them from sound? I have not seen anywhere that people are just giving noise canceling headphones. But that also think about it could be clear because you're not stimulating the mind. Because if you have complete silence, now you're right. Where you how your mind can be stimulated than look, looking at me the TV, but then you're not hearing the TV. No, so. that makes sense. Cool. Thanks for thanks for answering that. So I guess we'll bring our volunteer up. Thank you.
Now look down. Look at click that square. I hit play. That crystal ball to experience it for yourself. Would you care more then? So I don't have Dr. Sacka's house. You can kind of get an idea. This is what we'll be looking at. You can they'll be able to look around the hole, up, down, around their head, and kind of get an idea. Okay, this is what home looks like again. I can look at my living room, my bedroom. You know, here's Fluffy on the floor. Um, so this is the goal. Just kind of look at my Virtual reality is at a tipping point. Buffering, but this is kind of the idea. Now, anyone with a smartphone can be transported through VR to just about anywhere. Like the reefs of a skier. Hmm? How do I do that? Oh, I just did it again. is you know, get their mind moving, get their mind stimulating, you know, get them out of the, the hospital room because let's be honest, the hospital rooms aren't very decorative or attractive looking. They're bland walls and you hear beeping and noises all the time. An island off the coast of Naples, Italy. Put them somewhere above, that might be full. These island reefs look normal. But under I don't know why the video is not working, but Any other questions? Yeah, how long does the battery last? How long does the battery last? Battery for the headset? So this headset's actually plugged into the wall. So it's not like the commercial ones. Like Scientists or, have made a breakthrough yeah, discovery about how climate change is rapidly affecting. Okay. Sorry, just to clarify, you said the inclusion criteria is for patients who are intubated, right? Not intubated. Not intubated, right? So if they have the headset on, um, while they have it on, are they going to be, is there going to be people around to like monitor them in the room or how does that work? So while Dr. Saka is standing, the people in the, in the hospital rooms will be sitting or laying in the bed. They're not going to have them walking around, even though physical therapy has approached with the idea of putting them in the French Riviera and have them walking on the beach, which I don't think is a good idea, but that's something physical therapy has mentioned as an idea. Can we use it as a rehab tool? Okay, that's interesting. Any other comments? Oh, hold on. That's okay. Um, 
I was just curious, can can you set that up to have like a live Zoom video so they could talk to their family? I have not tried that yet to find out if that's possible. Okay, thanks. Y'all are gonna make me get some steps in today, huh? <laughs> Going back to my initial question, uh, can you tell us again how you are assessing the outcomes? You said you are looking at the CAM ICU score. So Virtual the CAM ICU scoring, are we, are, how are they scoring on the now CAM ICU? Are they the delirious? Are they not? Are we able to get them when they're no longer delirious? So it's kind of based on the CAM. Plus, we're also going to get the sympathetic recording from the headset itself, um, the heart rate, eye movements. Where are they looking in the in the videos? Um, Somebody who's confused probably isn't going to look at directly and have a response to a positive response, you know, to their family members. They'll probably have they'll probably be looking all over instead of focusing at one point in the video. So this headset and the company, the other company, can actually see where are they looking in these videos and what their responses are. Like the reefs of Ischia, an island off the coast of Naples, Italy. Again, just out of curiosity. Um, how is this different from making them watch TV in the room when they're awake? Or as he pointed out, making them interact with family through Zoom? So the idea is getting them out of the hospital. Because um, if you're watching TV, you're not, the theory is to trick their mind into thinking they're at home um, and not in the hospital building. So if you're watching TV, you're still in the hospital. From above, these island reefs look normal. You're not in the room with you, you're still and in the hospital. Sorry? Theoretically, I'm this, this is all theory. This has never been done before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um the whole idea is basically combining what the burn surgeons are doing for their analgesia as well as what the neuropsychiatrist psychologists are doing for dementia. And put and a breakthrough discovery about and how climate change is rapidly affecting marine life. and changing mentation. So that's the whole idea behind this. It's all in theory. And my concern is that you are making them go out of hospital for 30 minutes. Yeah. And come back to real life. I, I'm worried if that's going to worsen their confusion and delirium. The study will tell us. And that's one fear. Are we going to make it worse? Or do we need to make them wear it longer? These are all variables that you know will be tuned as the study continues. Um, the, the one patient who was on BiPAP did not have any delirium. He just wanted to wear it all day. He didn't want to be in the hospital. He didn't want to be in the hospital room, so he wore this all day. So. In Monterey, I study ocean acidification, the increasing acidity of the oceans as they uptake carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, and Dr. Chu, I'm Dr. Kruor, uh, as you know, and I wanted to um, sort of maybe mm, add some clarity. So I know, uh, for example, in VR, there are probably better videos than what you're showing where people can like navigate around a room and do things within a room. And I also know from talking to some other folks that are experimenting with other VR that, um, that there are people now doing VR to go out into homes and capture the, the home setting 
anticipating that their loved one's going to move into a nursing long-term care type facility and be disoriented and they're going to then hopefully be able to replay back their home where they left to go into the long-term care so there are people working on this how to how to keep people oriented who are getting dementia and delirium uh, and having to leave their natural setting um, so I think there are probably better examples than maybe the, the climate change video and things you're showing. But I also want to sort of pull you back a little bit to because I grew up for 20 some years hearing that it's best to tell loved ones to if they can spend the night in the hospital, it's better for their loved one to help reorient them when they wake up. Uh, I've seen families that take photos from the home environment. Um, but I, I've seen people like say, okay, bring your photos of the dog and bring the family photos from home. And some people even get creative and they scan them into a laminated mat that they put on the bedside so the nurses can hold it up and say, here's your daughter, here's your son, here's your dog. Um, and I, so to me, this feels like a natural extension of that. But I guess my question is, uh, is there maybe some studying that needs to be done about what's the best images or the best environment to show them? Because I mean, we've for years said, hey, go get a Hallmark card and record your voice and say, hey, mom, this is your daughter. Uh, so we have something with audio and visual for them to look at when they're disoriented. So is this maybe proposing as something that's an extension of that kind of more simplified tool that we would do? So this was just a video that I could grab quickly before setting up. Um, uh -huh. I, was, I can't get a picture of Dr. Saka's house into this. Um, so this was just kind of get an idea of this is you know, what they could actually do with inside the headset. And the actual thing themselves, they're going to do a full walkthrough of the house. So they're not going to, they're not going to be watching these. They're going to be watching their house video. Um, so the idea is, you no, know, okay, we're not going to be watching the, the coral reefs. So really, we're going to be seeing you know, John Smith's house or their walkthrough of their house. Um, so this video wasn't, isn't something they're going to be watching. Um, now, how's it different than the family members being present? Because the family members can't be there all the time. That's just the reality of both hospital visitation policies and you know, somebody who's got COVID, you don't want their family members being in the room either. So this, the whole idea behind this kind of came with COVID and the limitations of what people can do in the hospital. So this is kind of to bridge those gaps between, um, I'm not gonna say how them wear the headset while the family members are in the room, unless they're both people want to do that. Um, like the one guy who was in the ICU, his son was present, but his son wanted him to wear it. Um, so this is kind of bridge that gap to when family members can't be present. No, I understand all of that. I, I think what I'm um, referring to is now with technology, people can do anything, right? I can record myself on a video and be on Twitter in two minutes. Um, you could have family members record themselves and say a, a, a message to the loved one. And so if the nurses are having delirium, they can uh, just play the, have them play the video or have the option on the headset for them to, to listen to their son or their daughter or whatever. There, there's a lot of different media that you can probably create to show the, the person. I feel a little confused because when I'm watching even like this room that's moving around, that seems like a lot of work to go get a video of their home environment uh, when you might be able to do something even more simple to reorient the person by having them engage in something that's more like a conversation with a loved one, for example. But that's what we're already doing now is having family members in the room and they're mm -hmm. still having people with delirium. So 
obviously our current method isn't working. No, I'm saying record the family member. It's easier to just stick them in a room and record the family member, right? And then you got quick video that's easier to obtain faster. And it's more personal as well for the fit for the loved one as well. Because so the that, families can't stay overnight half the time anyway, especially smaller families with not as many loved ones. So there may be sort of an in-between version of this that you could pilot as well to just kind of have a have a second method to see which one's more systematically easier to implement. Yeah. So that's one option. That's one thought. But then the other thought was, you know, can family members take the video for us? Just do a quick walkthrough. But the thing is, if you're just showing a video of someone's face and saying, I love you, honey, you know, that's just a five, 10 second clip, but you're not getting them out of the, the room. You're showing them basically a portrait and that's not going to really stimulate their mind to get them thinking that they're not in the ICU anymore. They're not in the hospital. If you're putting them in a room that's got, he's got four walls and it shows them it's something different. That's the whole idea is to trick their mind that they're not in the hospital. That sounds good. Anything else? All right, Dr. Chu, thank you.